Exodus chapter 3 this week. The theme of Exodus is the revelation of a redeeming God. God was known prior to Exodus, prior to the events of Exodus, but not known well. And so he reveals himself gradually throughout the book, and we're seeing that come into play as we get into chapter 3. Knowing God is the greatest gift. If we did not know God, it would mean that we wouldn't know his attributes, we wouldn't know his person, his personality, his goodness, his grace. If we didn't know God, we wouldn't know about our sin, and not knowing about our sin, how we how we live contrary to God's purpose and will. Uh, by not knowing our sin would mean that we would not know of our need of salvation. But knowing God, knowing God changes everything. It means that we, we understand the righteous standard by which we will be judged. And that righteous standard is His perfect holiness. We're not going to be judged by how good our friends are, how good our neighbor is, and say, well, if you were at least better than someone else, then you're fine. No. We're, we're compared against God's perfection. Knowing God helps us understand his righteous standard. Knowing God means that we know what he has done to save us. And he has done that. Throughout time, God has revealed even more to us about himself than what he reveals to Israel in the book of Exodus. Because today, we know that knowing God means knowing Jesus, who is God the Son. It means knowing of his sacrifices. He stood there as our high priest, sacrificing himself, shedding his own blood for our sin. And knowing that we partake in that sacrifice, not by well, not by the communion service that we're going to, to have later. No, that isn't how we partake in, in the sacrifice of Christ. We partake by faith. We become covered in the, that sacrifice by faith, believing that Jesus is who God says he is, that he is God the Son, and that he died on our behalf. Knowing God is indeed the greatest gift. Today's text is in Exodus chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 7, so I invite you to follow along as I read. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt, but Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. 
Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, well, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would bless the reading and the proclamation of your word this morning. Lord, guide my very thoughts and words. Guide our thoughts as we process what your word is saying so that we might understand and that we might respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, uh, Pastor Dan preached the first part of chapter 3. We found Moses shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. This week, God is calling Moses to shepherd a much more unruly group of beings, going from sheep to the people of Israel. Last week, we saw that God was not approachable without holiness. Remember, Moses couldn't stand on that uh, place with his shoes on, for that was holy ground. God showed himself, he manifested himself in a very small way to Moses, preparing to reveal himself in greater ways, both to Moses and to the people of Israel, ultimately to Pharaoh, and honestly, because it's in Exodus, revealing himself to us. By the way, if you were gone last week, I'd encourage you to head over to our website or to our YouTube channel and uh, listen to Pastor Dan's sermon. It was the best sermon he's had all month. <laughs> Actually, it may be the one of the best sermons he's ever preached, and I, I was sure to, to let him know that, but be sure that you uh, catch up on that sermon if you missed it last week. Today's passage has three basic sections. Uh, really should have taken more of it, but it's just too much to cram into one sermon because uh, as we continue through the chapter, it really is all one section. But, uh, but the, the chunk we're taking today uh, has uh, three basic sections, and in each one there's either a protest or a problem uh, that, that God is going to answer. Um, I did some of the study for this sermon while I was at uh, the National Conference of our uh, church association. It was held in Salem, Oregon. Salem, that word that means shalom, or peace, uh, but a town that is not known for peace, but known for protests. I found the irony quite, quite great. Now, nothing happened while I was there, and I'm sure stuff has simmered down. But Moses doesn't have a meltdown sort of protest like what maybe we see in the news from time to time, uh, but he does resist God in today's passage all the same and even more so in the next passage. So uh, that's, that's where we're headed today. Our big idea this morning is that God wants our servant-like obedience, not our strength. Think about that. God wants our servant-like, our humble, willing to do whatever it is. He, he, he wants our servant-like obedience, not our strength. We're going to see that uh, play out in Moses' 
as we go through the passage. So the, the first problem is, is implied in verses 7 through 9. The problem is this, why hasn't God done something about his people's struggle? Chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus uh, highlighted all sorts of ways that life was bad and getting worse for the Israelites as they were enslaved in Egypt. And so God answers it by saying, I have come down. Uh, that's, what's, uh, that's what he's doing. Why has it gotten so bad? Another way of asking this question, and perhaps a question you'll hear from the world around you, is how can God be good when there is so much evil in the world? How can God be good when there is death and destruction all around? Actually, the way you're more likely to hear it from the world isn't in an inquisitive way like that, uh, but more like this. I don't want to have anything to do with a God that allows suffering like this. Is it possible that we've ever thought that way? Maybe not to that extreme, but, but what do we do with the problem of suffering? Is that a legit question? Is it, is it legitimate to ask God, how can he be good and allow suffering, allow evil, allow the problems of this world to go on? Is God either not powerful enough to prevent this sort of catastrophe? Or is he complicit with this evil, thereby making him not good? Many really do come to the conclusion that either there is no God, or there is a God, but he's not good, or he's not powerful enough to stop that which is evil. So what's missing in this line of logic? Well, what's missing is an understanding of God. What's missing is a, a woeful underestimating of how sin has corrupted our own sensibilities. That when we look at the world, we don't see it in the right way. Did the Hebrew people deserve to suffer this way? With all that preamble, you're like, this is probably a trick question. I can't answer that. It's not a trick question. Did they deserve to suffer this way? No, of course not. Our sensibilities would tell us that it's never right for people to be enslaved as the Hebrew people were. But the truth is, the truth, God's truth, is that what they deserved was far worse than what they received as slaves in Egypt, right? What they deserved was eternal punishment, not because they were bad to their friends and family or neighbors, not because they committed some sort of crime against humanity, but because they sinned against an eternally holy God. And a sin against an eternally holy God requires an eternal payment. So what the people of Israel actually deserved instead of it, being enslaved and abused in that manner, what they deserved is the same thing that everyone deserves. You and I deserve eternal destruction because of our sin. But what does the scripture say here in verse 8? He says, I have come down to deliver them. Folks, this is the gospel. This is the good news. God acts 
on our behalf. We are helpless to take care of our own sin problem. For Israel, it was slavery that was the issue in front of them that God came down to deliver them from. For everyone, the problem that we are helpless to solve is the problem of sin. Sin is anything contrary to God's character and nature. So anything that God has commanded us to do and we don't do, that's sin. Anything that God has commanded us not to do but we do is sin. And we are helpless to remove our own sin problem. Yeah, go ahead, do good things. That won't undo a single sin. We're helpless. God acts on behalf of his people. He acts on our behalf by providing one way of salvation. For Israel in the book of Exodus, that one way will be by following Moses and all the commands that God, through Moses, gives to the people of Israel, and then they will be rescued from slavery. That's just a picture of the reality, what God wants us to know for all time, that for all, for all people, the one way of salvation is found in faith in Jesus Christ. Faith, believe, trust, all very similar words. What you won't find in the gospel message is do. Do this, do that. It's believe. We often connect repentance. Repentance is turning away from sin and turning towards righteousness. We often connect repentance to salvation, and rightly so, but we're saved by faith. We often connect godly living and confession, recognizing sin and and calling it that and asking God to forgive us. We connect godly living and confession to salvation, and also rightly so, but it starts with faith alone. That is the one way. In the book of Exodus, the one way that Israel will be redeemed is by following Moses, by obeying God's laws given through Moses. For us, that one way is faith in Jesus Christ, that faith that is evidenced by turning away from sin, evidenced by repentance, faith that is demonstrated by good works, faith that is lived out in worship of God regardless of what's going on in life. The Christian walk is not just hashtag praise the Lord or God is so good when things are going well. When your life is happy because circumstances are good. No, the Christian life is a life of joy even when life is falling apart. Because that faith is lived out regardless of our circumstances. God has made one way. Just as God is doing something about the problems of Israel being enslaved, God has done something about sin in our lives as well. There's a, I'm a nerd, so it's fascinating to me. There's a fascinating little quirk in the text here that comes through clearly in the Hebrew grammar that. Uh, that doesn't show up in, in any of the English translations I looked at. And it's just that, that little word, them. 
in verse 8. It says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land. And, and literally translated, the word is not them, it's him. Referring to the whole nation of Israel as one lone person. Now why would, why would Moses write it this way? Well, first of all, God's promises are to Abraham and through Abraham to Isaac and through Isaac to Jacob. Jacob we know of as Israel. And who are we talking about? We're talking about the nation of Israel. And so God is intentionally using what, what we call a collective singular. It's, it's a, a singular pronoun or a singular noun used to describe a whole host of people. Now we do this all the time with words like team or church or corporation or family. We'll refer to a, a single church, but we know we're talking about a plurality of people because you can't have a church with just one person. That's not a, a church. So we recognize even though we're talking about plural people, we, we speak of them as a single unit. And it doesn't really matter that much as we're reading along in the text, whether we read them or him. Them is actually a little more clear to our mind, isn't it? Because we know we're talking about God rescuing all of Israel out of Egypt. But understanding that this happened, and this happens all throughout the book of Exodus. It happens all throughout the Old Testament when God is talking about uh, the children of Israel. He often uses the word him to refer to the whole. And why that's helpful, and obviously it's not helpful to talk about that every time we come across the word them. But I'm bringing it up today because uh, this, this truth, this concept of the collective singular helps us to understand the doctrine of original sin. In Adam, we all sinned. Now, we have a variety of ages in this room, but none of us are as old as Adam None of us were there at the time, and yet he is our representative. He is that one that because of his sin, we all have sinned. We all have sinned. The same is true of our salvation. Because of Jesus, because of his representative sacrifice. In Adam, we all sinned. In Christ, by faith, we all can be made whole, a single representative of the whole. By having this concept actually littered all throughout the Old Testament, it helps us to understand stories like David and Goliath. Why on earth would a nation fight a battle with another nation by sending one dude to go fight one other dude? That's exactly what was going on, right? It was, the, collect, it was the, the singular being representative of the whole. By building that in, by baking that into all sorts of biblical texts, it, it makes sense why Israel, uh, why, why the, the, the church could be started even in the New Testament as they recognize Jesus is that one representative salvation for all. All those sacrifices that were going on in the temple day in and day out that were trying to... Uh, to uh, be confession of sin or be gift offerings to the Lord. All those sacrifices, not one of them actually saved, right? But the one representative sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. Anyway, back to the text. Verses seven and nine say about the same thing, don't they? If you look at them, 
Uh, I've seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their cry, verse 9. Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me. Uh, Verses 7 and 9 tell us that God knows and he has witnessed the suffering of his people. In the middle of that sandwich, verse 8, God gives us his remedy. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of the land to a good land. He's going to deliver them, bring them to a land of milk and honey. This text is not referring to a sticky mess that some would lamely joke, and I am refusing to do. Nor is the text referring to a quaint little restaurant downtown named Milk and Honey. A land flowing with milk is a land that is ideal for raising goats and cows. Ideal for milk production, ideal for livestock. A land flowing with honey is a land where bees are busy making honey, which requires vast fields of vegetation, flowering vegetation. In other words, the promised land was a land of agricultural prosperity. And the description of the land, when the, remember the 12 spies, uh, which is later in history, when the 12 spies go to check out the land, and what do they say? They say, man, it is so bountiful. We found grape clusters that the only way you can move them is on a pole between two men. They are so huge. Flowing with milk and honey, indeed. There's a reason that the promised land for Israel is a picture, is a representation of heaven. All that is good that we look forward to in the next life is pictured in the promised land. So God says in verses seven through nine, seven through, yeah, seven through nine, I have come down, I have heard, I am acting. In verses 10 through 12, we see God tell Moses, I will be with you. Verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, uh, what? He didn't quite say it like that. He said, who am I that, that I should go to Pharaoh? And that's the protest here in this section. Moses is being commissioned by God to go and lead the Israelites out of slavery. And Moses says, I don't think so. Who am I? Does Moses not know who he is? Yes, he does. He is the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was born a Hebrew, but raised as a very privileged Egyptian. He knows who he is. He knows who he is now as well. He had an identity crisis at 40 years old. He ran away from everything he knew in Egypt and became a shepherd in the land of Midian. He is quite content to be integrated into Jethro's family. He's been there now for 40 years. Raising a family of his own, being part of Jethro's family, taking care of Jethro's sheep. What Moses doesn't know is who he is to go see Pharaoh. He knows how he was raised. He knows who he is now. But who is he to go and approach Pharaoh, and more importantly, who is he to be the person that actually leads the people of Israel? Why would they listen to him? 
know, we see an incredible change in Moses over the years. So as you recall, just a few verses ago at the end of chapter 2, uh, was 40 years prior, and, and he's, he's leaving Egypt. When he was in Egypt, he had elite status in the Egyptian hierarchy, and now what is he? He's a shepherd. Very high on the food chain to very, very low on the food chain. In fact, Genesis 46, 34 uh, made it clear what Egyptians thought of shepherds. It says that every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. They did not like them. It was the lowest of the low. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, there is no such thing as a bad job. It may be a dirty, smelly job. There are perhaps some, there are jobs that are immoral. Okay, that's a different subject. But a job that is beneath us to do, that's not really a thing, is it? But in the, in the, at least it shouldn't be, right, if we have a, a godly perspective on work. But to the Egyptians, to become a shepherd, they would just much rather die. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Moses, being raised in Pharaoh's household, to now being a shepherd. Remember when Moses intervened with the Egyptian who was abusing a Hebrew slave? Moses ended up killing that slave driver, burying him in the sand. And the next day, he tries to intervene once again, this time between two Hebrew men, and what do they do? They reject his help. So 40 years ago, Moses was all too eager to be a rescuer for his people. He wanted to do it. He sought it out. Remember, he had to actually leave his cushy home. He had to leave his, uh, the status and, and places that he was in order to go see the Hebrew slaves. He desired to be their rescuer, and today Moses has no desire whatsoever to fulfill such a role. It's not, it's not don't, don't read too much into that. It's not that Moses no longer has a heart for the slave. He's just not the eager, assertive man that he used to be. So Moses, Moses asks, who am I? But God doesn't answer, does he? Instead of answering who Moses is, God responds more of who he is. Look at that verse 12. He says, but I will be with you. And you are going to lead the people. And you are actually going to prove it by coming back to this very mountain and worshiping me together. God has come down. He said that I will be with you. Then he reveals himself more in verses 13 through 15. I am who I am. This third protest or problem how will I convince the people that you've really sent me? He remembers his last interaction with the Hebrew people, trying to break up this fight between Hebrew men and these, these Hebrew men said, who are you to help us? Who are you? Are you going to kill us too? It was not a good experience for him. So here, verse 13 says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, this is a legit question, isn't it? Who do I say has sent me? What evidence am I going to bring to show that, yes, indeed, I am coming to you from God to help you? And God simply responds with his name. He says, I am who I am. 
Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God was already known as Yahweh or Jehovah. In fact, as you're reading through the scripture and you see the all caps Lord, that is referring to God's proper name, Jehovah. As God is reintroducing himself to his people through Moses, he uses a phrase that vocalizes, that sounds very similar to Yahweh, but is translated for us as I am. Actually, it has a little more to it that Moses would have immediately understood. There's a a causation sense to this word. Uh, It's not just that God exists, that God is. It's that he causes. And that's all baked into it that Moses would have understood and we need to understand as well. When God says, I am, he's telling us that I transcend time. It's not that I was or that I will be. No, he, he is above time. He is at the same time in the past, present, and future because time means nothing to him. Now, that's really hard to wrap our minds around. I get that. But he's saying that in using I am as his name, he's telling us that he transcends time. He is declaring himself as the one who causes all things. God does not simply exist and always has and always will. God does not simply exist. He is the source of all that exists. That's who Moses is to tell the people has sent him. Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, all caps there, Jehovah, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God is the great I am. As the great I am, he lacks nothing. There is nothing that you and I bring to the table that God says, oh, I really need that. There is nothing that you and I can offer to him that is going to improve his life, right? Because he's God. So as a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, as we we grow in our spiritual walk with him, learning more about him, reading the Bible, praying, living for him, serving others, serving in the church, as we do all those things for him, that's not actually paying God back because God can't be owed anything because he's always complete. If you owe me $20, that's $20 that I didn't have to spend to put you know, two gallons of gas in my car or whatever it is now, uh, right? Because I'm lacking that $20. When, yes, we owe God our everything, but the reality is, is he's not lacking in anything. Our debt to him is different than a debt that you and I might have with each other. Are you tracking what I'm saying? If you borrow $100,000 from the bank, they no longer have that $100,000 to give to someone else. You owe God something, you haven't actually reduced God's value, right? God is the great I am. He doesn't need us. He wants us. And there is such a grand difference in the two, isn't there? 
He wants our servant-like obedience. That's what he's trying to get from Moses in these passages this week and, and the following few sermons. He wants Moses to just simply obey. Not because Moses knows how it's going to work. We're going to see more of that come in the passages to come. But he wants Moses to trust him. God wants our servant-like obedience, not our strength. Moses is coming up with excuses as to why he's not the right guy. And God's saying, don't worry about your weaknesses or your strength. Trust in my strength. God has called you to serve. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God has called you to serve. I don't need to have a special vision from God, because that's not a thing. I don't need to have some extra writing from God, because that's also not a thing. I just have the word of God. It tells us that, that he has a place, he has a way for every believer to serve. God has called each believer to serve, and yet some are protesting. If God has given a burden to you to share the gospel with an individual, then that's God calling you to share the gospel with that individual, not to tell someone else, hey, you should share the gospel with them, right? He calls you by giving you a burden for someone or for some need. He calls you through others, asking you by prompting you to take some step, whether that's a, a step of leading a Bible study or, or counseling at camp or whatever other need is in the church or in the community. He calls in different ways, but when he calls, he always enables. And we're going to see that. I mean, it's going to take a while because Exodus, the, the first couple chapters spans a whole lot of years, but now we've really slowed down. We're going through lots of details he calls in different ways, but he, also, he always enables. So let me ask you a question. How are you being like Moses by resisting God's desire for your life? Something for you to ask yourself. How are you resisting God's desire for your life? I think if we're honest, we'll all find a way. Right? And if that's the case, who will you talk to to hold you accountable to take the next steps to fulfill that desire of God in your life? You gotta talk to someone. Because just sitting here and thinking over it and feeling bad for a couple minutes until Pastor Chad is finally done isn't actually helpful, is it? Now that might be uh, your spouse, it might be a good friend, some other believer it might be your pastor, that's okay. But someone that will help you to take that next step. And it all boils down to this. Will you actually trust God? If God's leading you to do something, he's going to enable it. God promises Moses, I'm gonna prove it to you because you're going to lead them out of Israel and on this very mountain you're gonna worship and we'll see that eventually because God keeps his promises. Will you trust God? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of, of Moses, who's just a real guy. We, like he, struggle with serving you sometimes. 
we struggle in being confident that you could use us. And Lord, we see over and over again in Scripture that you, you use the people that aren't sure of their own strength. It's those of us who are proud and arrogant, those who believe we've already arrived. We're the ones that, that you don't use. So Father, as we find ourselves in those situations being led by your spirit to perhaps speak the gospel to someone or to confront someone about their sin. Or if you're leading us to do it, you'll enable us to do it. Help us to not protest. Father, help us to be people of faith who rather than resisting your leading will follow you joyfully We thank you and praise you for how you will enable us in Jesus' name. Amen.